Welcome to the podcast, Whiskey and a Map. Stories of adventure and expeditions as told by those who love them. I'm your host, Michael Reinhardt. As an adventure photographer, I travel to the world's wild places to learn about the people, cultures, and wildlife that inhabit them and bring back their stories. It has been said that many adventures and expeditions started simply with a map and a glass of whiskey, a desire to go and see the world's wild places. You're invited to pull up a chair, pour yourself a glass of your favorite whiskey, and join us as we hear stories from another one of our friends just returned from the field. How far would you go to accomplish your dream? Would you risk death? In this episode, we are joined by Cyril Demereaux, French-born, now American citizen. Cyril considers himself a citizen of the world. Fluent speaker of six languages, Cyril is attracted to learning and discovering new cultures and places. A move to California following his profession in the wine business led Cyril to begin exploring the world of outrigger canoeing and kayaking. This led him to the Great Pacific Race. Joining a team of four men, they rode from California to Hawaii, making the crossing in 39 days and setting a Guinness record. Inspired by stories of maverick ocean explorers, Cyril began to plan his biggest expedition, crossing the mid-Pacific on a kayak with solely human power from California to Hawaii. Despite delays and a failed attempt, Cyril accomplished this goal in September 2022, reaching Hawaii and becoming the first 100% human-powered kayaker to accomplish such a feat. A member of the Explorers Club, Cyril hopes that his adventures will inspire others to find their own dream and go after it. All right, welcome to the podcast. Today we have our friend Cyril Deramo. Cyril, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you, Michael. That's good to see you. Uh, we have a lot to talk about in your various adventures. But as is a tradition here at Whiskey and Map, we always start off with a good drinking story. Do you have one for us? Of course. <laughs> okay, so the story is, I was 25 year old. Quite, quite young, and I, I had decided to do a trip around the world for one year with a friend of mine. And we knew that when you go to new countries, the, cult, the, the food is different, right? So there's uh, different bacteria. Maybe they don't clean the, the, the veggies the same way or the water is not that clean. So we found out something. is we, We're going to have a little shot of cognac after every meal. Not, not breakfast, obviously, but lunch and dinner. So we left from France, and the first country was Argentina. So we, we did that, and we obviously enjoyed the di digestion uh, capacities of that little cognac. Uh, but then we left Argentina, we went to Brazil, and, well, we had to buy a local alcohol, right? So we got some cachaça, and then we started to do that. And, you know, it's, it's really a tiny little beat because it's just a screw cap on the top of the, the bottle. And... We thought, this is perfect. Like, we're not getting any bacteria. It's, our guts are doing great. So we kept on going. We arrived in Chile and Peru. It was, you know, uh, Pisco, I guess. We would just take the local alcohol, right? And then we did South America and then the whole South Central America. We arrived in Southeast Asia and it worked all the So we found, like, some golden nugget that we have to share with all the travelers around the world. And that was true until the last country we hit, which was India. <laughs> and there, you could take as much as you want. <laughs> we had diarrhea all the way. <laughs> India did you in. <laughs> yes. But I guess, uh, you know, we kept on with the tradition after that. 
Well, it's good medicinal purpose. Okay, my question is, so of all of the different types of alcohol that you have throughout the countries, excluding, because you're French, the cognac, excluding your home brew, of all the other countries, which one was your favorite? Well, um, I guess overall, not, not just this trip, but I really enjoy a, a scotch whiskey, um, a single malt, and that's, that's my go-to um, little aperitif that I like to go to. And But uh, yeah, usually I'm a brown brand type. Um, I'm not very fan of, of vodka or other white liquids. I'm really just the brown ones that have been aged in, in barrels. And, uh, I like bourbon. I like uh, Irish whiskey, Scotch whiskey, Armagnac, Cognac, all these brown whiskey, brown ones. Well, that's perfect for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> now, sir, we're going to be talking a lot about your epic solo kayak adventure from California to Hawaii. Before we get there, though, I'd like to know what led you to this life of adventure. And, and you referred to it already, this epic backpacking trip that you took. Mm-hmm. That seemed to be the start of, of your big journey as an adventurer. Tell us about that. Well, I mean, that's a big question, right? Why do we do the things we do? <laughs> Philosophical question that I'm still not sure. <laughs> but I think that's a question everybody should be asking themselves. And, and just as an introspective question, it's, it's interesting to do. Now, I think there's a per- personality um, type. I'm, I'm really extrovert. I love to discover new things. I don't know if you're familiar with the Enneagram. I'm a type nine, which is type seven, which is the... I'm never not satisfied with discovering something. I'm the enthusiast. So I'm like a little puppy running everywhere. Like <laughs> So in fact, people call me a little Peter Pan because <laughs> I'm very young at heart and I'm 47 now, but I guess I want to discover new things all the time. So you started out, I think it was in 2002 on this just journey around the world. You pawned out a backpack and and what was the plan? So to lead to that, there was a lot of, of a trajectory. So I, I would go, if you allow me, I would go back to my roots. And I had a childhood where I didn't travel much more than like my own country. Like I was born in France and I was going in Brittany, west of France for the vacations, but we didn't really travel overseas. My childhood was really nothing really exciting more than just going to a little village, little school, and just going playing soccer on my bike, like uneventful, so to speak, but very grounding. And when I discovered my wings, it was 18 years old. I did a year as an exchange student in Arkansas, Arkansas, out of those places, because I wanted to go to America. And the host family found me from there, and I went there, and I discovered what I call my wings. And and it, and then I felt like free. I, I, I love to discover a new culture, speak a new language, and I said, I want to do that. And that led me to doing a master's degree in international business. That was a year in, in Oxford, England, a year in Madrid, Spain, a year in Paris. And then why not go to another country after? So I moved to Italy for two years in Milan, learning Italian after Spanish. And and then after that's when my trip around the world in 2002, I wasn't ready to go and start working. I, I had a business degree, so I could be working on M&A and banking and all that, like all my friends were doing. But no, I didn't really care about searching career yet. And it was a friend of mine who said, okay, how about we do 12 months, low budget, backpacking, stay at people's house and friends of friends and just travel the world. Because we know that we have not much money, but we have time now. 
20 years down the road, we'll have money, most likely, but we won't have time. So that was the, the philosophy, let's, let's enjoy it and go. But there was something about that trip. There was an interview that I heard you do, and you said that, that, that after that backpacking trip, you were, you were never the same. What do mm. you mean by that? Well, throughout our lives, we understand that there's key moments where there's a before and there's an after. And that trip to me was a defining moment. I felt a connection with all the cultures of the world. I felt like this is what life is all about. <laughs> you know, I did my trip around the world for $7,000 one year. You know, it's so little money. And that includes the flights. It includes my budget was $10 a day. And after having lived overseas, it was the best way to connect with all the other cultures. So we did South America, Central America, Southeast Asia. We arrived in India. And most of the countries that were cheap, <laughs> like I couldn't go to Australia. It's too big. It's too expensive. I couldn't go, you know, to, to mostly Europe. And I said, okay, Europe, I'll do it later. But those countries that I chose were just very good for me. And then, so I was raised Catholic. I'm going to talk about a religion a little bit. I was raised Catholic. And that trip just opened my eyes towards more of a, a different approach to believing in the the oneness. I call it the oneness now. Because when you arrive in Brazil, it's like, okay, well, they have different religions, some that are, you know, inherited from Africa. And then you arrive in Central America, and they also have a different kind of religion and seeing the world where they'll, they'll kill a chicken or they'll, you know, pray for a good harvest. And, and then you arrive in Indonesia. It's the biggest Muslim country, you know, and they pray and, and they're, they have a way of, of, um, you know, praying that is so different. And then you arrive in India where it's like, oh my God, like you believe in Ganesh, like it's elephant head. Like, and then you realize, but wait, if I had been born in India, I would probably believe what they believe. If I had been born in Africa or in Indonesia, I would believe what the culture tells you to believe. Really, there's this one thing that is common to all countries and all cultures. There is something bigger than that, something interconnected. What is this? And, um, that taught me a lot, a lot about, you know, what, what is it for me? I have to find my own way. And, and in many, many times I thought, you know, if you're taught something and you believe it without feeling it yourself in the first hand, you haven't really discovered it. So I think for me, the closest was really the, I guess, the Native American view of connectedness where you would, uh, you would feel energy if you walk in the woods. You would feel energy if you're by the water or the energy of the sun is warming you up in the mountains and in a prairie and taking care of our environment. And that was really drawn to that. But in the end, you know, religion is, it's, it's a difficult subject. But in the end, I think we all see the same thing. If you ask somebody to paint a tree, the Indian and the African and the South American and the American and the European, they're all going to paint a tree. But then you're all going to do the same, like a different way of painting it. So that's how I see it. Very interesting. Yeah, I can see how that, that, that is a life-changing uh, experience. Yeah, I, I guess I got a taste of it. I just came back from Cambodia and Vietnam, and, and uh, Cambodia is 80 90% Buddhist, and really get immersed in that and, and see the people and, and, and uh, how they relate to that oneness. It was, it was pretty fascinating. Like you say, eye opening. And then being out with the tribal folks in the, uh, in the jungles there, how one, how connected they are to that, that environment. 
I can see how that uh, that trip was a life changing experience. Yeah, and then it teaches you so much that every culture has something to teach you. You know, like you say, I did Zen meditation. I started zazen, you know, from the Buddhist religion, and I think it was great perspective. I didn't feel what I felt on on, on my Catholic journey, you know. Um, so being Feeling one with also the, the human race. I, I really feel a citizen of the world. I was born in France. My heart is French. I'm now American citizen as well. But it's just a, a stamp on a book. Really, you know, and feeling the oneness and the connectedness with other human beings. Like we're all the same. We, we all search the same thing. We want a happy life, a better life, a happy, you know, family and our loved one. We want them to, to, to be okay and, you know, thrive. So we all want the same thing. Yeah, I think, you know, adventure and exploration, it's not so much planting your flag on top of the summit or whatever thing you conquered. It's it's that journey through the culture and how you grow. Your your perceptions are challenged, perceptions grow, you see things in different light and mm-hmm. and yeah, you uh hopefully become a deeper better person. Yeah, and I think it's what's missing now. People travel very fast. They go to you could be to India tomorrow. You could be in Togo tomorrow, you know, but you go, you do your thing, you come back and you, like, the opportunity of traveling is so crucial to one's uh, growth in personality. And I see, you know, at 18 years old, when I left my, my country to discover another one, it's just a, the filters are different, the, the culture, but the way people think and, and, and it's just enriching. People need to travel and learn languages, you know? Yeah. Broaden your broaden horizons. Let's talk about kayaking because in due time you moved to the states and you took up kayaking. Why kayaking? Well, okay, soccer was my sport forever. Because after after the trip around the world, I moved to Brazil for six months and I moved to Argentina for two years. And look at like Brazil, Argentina, and the countries before England, France, Spain, Italy. It's all soccer, right? <laughs> so. Soccer was perfect to make friends. I'd go. And then I went and moved to the California. I was 32 years old. I never kayaked. I had windsurf when I was in Brittany as a child, but never kayaked. And a friend of mine from Fiji says, you know, that we have this outrigger canoe. It's, it's right under the Golden Gate. You should come. And it's a Polynesian canoe. There were six on the boat. And it's, it's really cool. You should try. And I had just come to the country. I said, why not? So I went into the boat. And after half an hour, I was like, oh, my God, when do we stop? <laughs> and I really loved the team aspect of kayak. So, he was canoeing at the time. He was not kayaking yet. And I did this for four years. And I did this race. There's a local race, you know, going from uh, Newport Beach to Catalina. So, it's 32 miles. Wow, that's amazing. We have to do water change. We jump in the water. Some people go. And then it's five hours of paddling. I'd never done that before. Loved it. And then somebody says, oh, there's this other race called the Molokai Hoe. That's a world championship for outrigger canoe. We go from the island of Molokai to Oahu. And it's 43 miles. It's going to be six plus hours. Okay, let's do that. We trained for two hours. I did four times. I loved it. And then another one says, there's this race in the Sacramento River. You know, that's same. It's canoeing, but it's a river canoe. So it's a little bit different technique. But this one's 100 miles. It's going to be maybe 12 hours. Okay, let's train for that. Let's do that. Oh, I loved it. And this other guy says, you know, that's what it is. It, you have, the, you're the average of the five people that spend, you spend the most time with, right? 
and around me. I guess that's surrounding me with people that always got good ideas about <laughs> kayaking and longer distance. So there's this race up in Canada called Yukon River Quest. Yukon River Quest, like just the name is amazing. And then they call it the race to the midnight sun. And you look into that, it's 450 miles where there's almost no night because it's in July, so high in, 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 the, in the globe that you arrive, look, the sun will go down at 11 p.m. It'll be dark for an hour and it'll be day again at 2 o'clock in the morning. It's cold. It's like freezing temps at night. And you're in the wilderness. There's bears and stuff. Okay, let's do this. So we got a crew together. We trained like crazy. And then it took us 45 hours to finish that race. And in the end, that was my first race where I thought, wow, actually, I'm pretty good at long distance. I'm, I'm good at managing my, uh, my mental side. I'm managing my effort. Uh, I'm self-aware that I know that I shouldn't push or when I push, when should I push and managing my nutrition. And, you know, through this experience, I learned more and more. So I did that race three times in a six-man canoe and a four-man canoe and a two-man canoe. And then I stumbled upon another crazy website called the Great Pacific Race. Imagine the name, the Great Pacific Race. And that just alone makes me dream. <laughs> the Great Pacific Race. And that website was from this British guy called Chris Martin that says, you don't have to be a rower to cross an ocean. Well, that's good because I'm not a rower. <laughs> I've never rowed before. But I look into that and it, it's getting on a rowboat with a team of three other guys of a team of four people. And we leave from Monterey, California to get to Hawaii. So the first thing is great is like three hours from where I live because I'm next to San Francisco. Okay, I'm going to learn how to skull. I'm going to put a crew together. And it didn't go as, as planned because I couldn't finance, I couldn't find the money to buy the boat. So I had to postpone that a couple of years. But eventually in 2016, we did that race and we won. We got first place. We got the Guinness record in 39 days and 12 hours, something like that. Amazing. And amazing. With a, a team of very international people, just like I like it. There was my friend Thiago from Brazil. There was Fiam from Iceland. And there was Carlo from the US. And I was a French, Frenchie in the team. So we were called Team Uniting Nations. <laughs> very cool. And then after that, that led you to kayaking. Now, paddling, rowing, two very different things. And then kayaking is now two-handed paddling. Again, much yeah. different. What led you to there? So the, the six-man canoe that I was talking to you about is called the Outrigger Canoe. There's also a one-man version. It's called the one-man. It was the OC1, Outrigger Canoe 1. And that's usually where you go to get better. Because if you're six in the boat, you don't really know if your stroke is really efficient. So they teach you, hey, go on this one-man. And another performance boat is called a surf ski. A surf ski is like a kayak. Same shape as the outrigger canoe, one person, but without the outrigger, the float. And I had a lot of friends that were doing this, so I tried it. There's very, they're very TP, but you can start with one that is not as TP. And, and then you go, as you get better, as you, you know, your core gets more stability, um, you can go in and tipier and faster and faster. So I started surf ski quite a bit and I just loved it all together. I, I, I was paddling surf ski when I came back after the rowing. First of all, I said, okay, this 39 days, you know, you row two hours, you stop two hours, row two hours, all day, all night. I'm like, I can't do that. That's it. I'm never going to do this again. That's it. It's too hard. <laughs> so I started kayaking and doing races and, you know, with friends and two men, three men surf ski. 
And then I thought, okay, I started to read this other book from Ed Gillette. And Ed Gillette is an American uh, from California who crossed the same distance from Monterey to Hawaii in a kayak. And I read the book. It's called The Pacific Alone. And that book was an inspiration, like crazy inspiration to, wow, I did, I did that crossing, so I know what it is to be out there. And this guy did it in a kayak. So I read the book and I felt like everything that he had on the book. And I said, I, I think I could do it in a kayak too. So I, you know how dreams are. You start to look and you search online. Who's, who else has done a kayak crossing? Oh, there's this guy, Peter Bray. He crossed the North Atlantic from Canada to Ireland. I read his book. And this guy, Scott Donaldson, he crossed the Tasman Sea from Australia to New Zealand. I read his book. Alexander Doba, the Polish guy who crossed three times the Atlantic. I read all the blog posts. And I started to let the passion, you know, sow the thread of maybe I could do it. And I called the guys. I called, there were only four guys that I kayaked across. I met Ed Gillette. I had a you know, call with Peter Bray. I had a call with Scott Donaldson. And little did you know, I was like, okay, I'm going to build my own boat, and I want to do Monterey to Hawaii as well. That's a heck of a commitment, because that's about 2,500 miles of open ocean by yourself in a kayak, which is, you know, has, it's close to the water edge, so not a lot of yeah. uh, gunwale there to, to protect you. Yeah, I think the the interesting thing is, when I moved to California, I was 32. I started on the project of willing to cross alone. I was 42. So if you think about it, it's only 10 years. From the moment I first put my butt in a kayak or a canoe in that, until the moment I decided to do that. 10 years is so little, isn't it? Like, it means you start playing guitar now. You're going to do a concert in, in the biggest arena in, in, in the U.S.? This is crazy. <laughs> Well, there was a, a, a fine definition between crazy and genius. So we'll see how that pans out. Well, you just don't, I imagine you just don't cross in any type of kayak. Tell us about the, tell us about the boat that, that you had designed for you. So the first thing that I did, I told you, I, I called the people that had done it before. And I, I, I really love adventure. I love life to the fullest. So. If I do an adventure, safety is always going to be the most important for me. So I looked at all the different designs and I, I came up with one that would be the safest. Not the fastest, the safest. That means it's a kayak that is 23 feet long. Not very wide. It's about 75 centimeters, so less than a meter wide. And it's a kayak, right? So the big difference between ocean rowing and kayak. There's been 800 crossing and rowing boats, of which 230 were solo. Kayak, there's only been four people, so six, cro six crossings in kayaks. And the reason it's much lower to the water, you have to be able to touch water on both sides of the kayak, and you're using a paddle, not oars. You're not going backward, you're going forward. So there's many changes, right? And the one thing I wanted to, to have is a boat that would be really seaworthy. That means I wanted to have a cabin that would be closed in. So if there was a storm, I could go in, close the hatch, completely waterproof. I wanted a boat that could be self-frightening. Right. If I do capsize, I need it to be such a design that it would flip and come back on the right side, right? So that meant having a, a, a certain design, having, having, having a lot of ballast. The weight should be under the water line. 
And then what I wanted on that boat is also apply all the technology and, and the electronics that I had on my first crossing. That means I wanted to have a plotter. I wanted to have a water maker because I can't really carry 70, 80 days of, of water. I could carry the food, 4,000 calories a day, but I, I couldn't carry both food and water. So I wanted to have a water maker and the water maker needs to be powered. It's electric. So I need solar panels. I need lithium ion batteries. I need a plotter. It's like a GPS, right? But also I need AIS, which is automatic identification system. And that's what the boats that go overseas or on, on across oceans use so that they can see, be seen by other boats and they can see other boats, right? It detects other boats. I press on the button. I see this container ship is going at 15 miles an hour. The name of that boat is such and such. It's going at that direction. There's a probability of, of encounter or not, right? So this is AIS. I've got an RTE, which is a radar transmission enhancer. That's an antenna that reverberates the radar that they will use the container ship so they see me. My boat is made of carbon, super light. It's 80 kilos, so uh, 200 pounds empty. But with all the food and everything, it's 800 pounds. But it's small. On, compared to a container ship, they wouldn't see me, so they need that. I need that RTE. And I need the backup of a backup of backup. So I have a water maker. I have a backup of a water maker. I have a plotter. I have a backup of a plotter. And I have a backup of that, another GPS with handheld with all the AAA batteries. I, you know, I've been thinking like for four years like crazy to have every option on that boat. So how did you design a cabin into a 20-foot kayak? Well, it's custom. I'm 5 foot 10. And first, I spoke to Peter Bray. I told you he, he crossed the North Atlantic. And that's <coughs> on my bucket list at some point. Maybe I'll, I'll do it one day. But what he did is amazing. He went from uh, Newfoundland in Canada, arrived in Ireland in 76 days. And I talked to him and said, Cyril, you need to, my boat was great. You need to talk to Rob Philo in England. And he, he's the one who designed it. So I called Rob and he said, Cyril, I, I built the boat for Peter in 2001. We're in 2019. It's 20 years ago. I'm retired and he was an old man. <laughs> I don't work anymore. I don't have a shop. How do you want me to build a boat? And I guess I must have been contagious, you know, passionate enough that he said, okay, Cyril, I'm going to buy it build my last boat it's going to be yours so he built it taking into all the experience that he had in the past uh, you know with the ballast maybe a dagger board i wanted also a pedaling system because i wanted to be able to use the feet to have a better upper and lower body um, um, health when edgelet arrived in hawaii after 64 days he had a kite so he, he was fast but his legs were atrophied and I said, I want to have a better health. I use the upper body, lower body. So I added this little pedaling system. And, and uh, Rob Filoy put that. And then the cabin. Yeah, the cabin. It doesn't want to be too big. Otherwise, the wind is going to blow you off course, right? And But the bigger the cabin, the more air there is trapped inside when you close the hatch. The, the most probability, when it does capsize, it's going to put it back in the right direction. And now, do you put the cabin in the apt? You put it in the bow? What's the best? What's the pros and cons? I'm going to go with a downwind situation with the trade winds. So it would make sense to have it in the bow because it would push me more. But then I wouldn't be protected by the elements. So, okay, let's do this. And again, it was problem solving one thing after the other. There, Michael, there's no blueprint. And I'm not a maverick. I'm not trying to invent the wheel. But we, like, there's four guys that have been before me crossing an ocean. So then it's just your best guess. How about we build it? We try. 
And if it works, great. If it doesn't, you know, we'll have to change. Learn and mistake and learn again. But he built you a good boat. Oh, I love her. I called her Valentine for my sister. And she's very slow. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> but I feel safe. You know, she's a cocoon. She's, she's my second half on the water. She's my life. Now, how did you physically prepare for this trip? Oh, that's a big question because, okay, so I was going to be paddling 10 to 12 hours a day, you know, sunrise, 6 a.m., sunset, 6, 7 p.m. There's 12 hours of daylight. And I was not going to paddle at night just for safety. You don't see the waves coming. It could be swamped. It could be, you know, getting cold, more colder than during the day. So still, how do you prepare for 12 hours? Like if you were just to walk for 12 hours a day for 90 days every day, you would, your joints would hurt. Your knees would hurt, you know? Okay, so how do you train your body to be a well-oiled machine? And so first, like I did to it, I knocked at every door that I could to people who could try to help. So I went to this company. They do mostly cycling, but they do VO2 max, you know? So they check your preparedness and see if you're good. So they put me on a bike and with this big, you know, machine on your face. <sighs> you breathe like, like Darth Vader. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then they go, okay, well, we're going to put you at 100 watts and you're going to hold that for five minutes. And then we're going to go 120 watts and you hold that for five minutes. And, and little by little, for above 20, 30 minutes, he puts it harder and harder. So your body is creating lactic acid. So what he would do at the same time, he would prickle, prick, excuse me, sometimes I don't have the right word, but he pinch my, my earlobe. And then it would get a drop of blood and it would take every minute a drop of blood from my earlobe. And that would be analyzed and it looked at the lactic acid built up. And the moment you, your, body, your muscles can't deal with lactic acid, that's when you have to stop. And the power is too hard. You can't keep going yet. Like your, your, your muscle says, I can't do it anymore. So he did that for like 30 minutes and says, Cyril, his name was Tim. He says, Cyril, uh, not very fit. <laughs> <laughs> well okay so what do you mean they say well you're not a sprinter and you're not a marathoner you're just in between so here's a protocol and you know he, he told me you know you're going to do those 12 hours a day that means you need muscles of course but you need efficient muscles you don't need too much big muscle but also your tangent tendons and your joints are we're going to suffer a lot and you could have a tendonitis if your tendons are not strong enough you know, your joints can suffer because you, it's repetitive motion. You do the same motion over and over. So for the next year, you're going to have to do the same exercise, long hours. And I recommend you to go at 140 beat per minute. So it's just under the threshold of where your oxygen, you know, is, is uh, uh, your anaerobic training. And for my age, the, the perfect. So he says, don't just kayak because, you know, uh, then you could get hurt in your training. And the one thing I wanted to start is to, be, to feel strong when I started and injury-free. So then it would say, okay, maybe you have to do two hours that Monday, two hours a Tuesday, two hours a Wednesday. But hey, do an hour of yoga, an hour of cycling on Monday, an hour of kayak, an hour of biking the Tuesday. And then go lift weight. And then you do one hour of yoga after that. You know, even if you spend half an hour in cold water, consider it training. Half an hour of meditation, trying to calm your mind, consider it training. Right. So again, there's no blueprint and, and I just found something that worked really well for me. Yeah. Body maintenance would seem to be paramount in that sort of a trip. Now mm -hmm. the mental 
the mental preparations because of the demand of a solo trip. How did you prepare for that? The mental challenge of this. Right. So I think the hardest is not knowing what to train and how to train for it. Right. Because you say, what do I do? I do a, like ninja training, I do like special forces training. How do they train? So you can look at what other people do. But mine is so specific. And being alone is hard. How do you train for being alone? How do you train for sleep deprivation? How do you train for hallucination? How do you train from loneliness? You know, being an extrovert. So the thing was, okay, what are going to be the difficult sides? Maybe being lonely. How, do, how am I not lonely? I don't know. How am I? Uh, I'm mean, very emotional. That's my strength. I'm so happy. I could I could be excited for anything. You know, I can think about something and some people. It's gonna make me cry. I love it. It's gonna be. This is my fire, but it could be my drawback. How do I balance the fact that emotions could be a drawback, right? And all the adventures I had done before was always just people, and it's so easy to be with people. And and let me tell you a little story. When I was like ten or twelve, was my grandma would go around the woods. We had a, a family vacation in Brittany. And there was a big wood, right? And we go with grandma. We have lamp torches and midnight and we hear the owls. We hear the crickets we, or whatever, whatever, you know, bugs are there. At least it's fun. You're holding grandma's hand. It's all good. And then the next day she says, Cyril, why don't you do it alone? <laughs> what? <laughs> and then you go alone. <laughs> Every sound is so scary. What? Is that a wolf? And you start running. <laughs> <laughs> Right? That's a kid's perspective, but as adults, it's the same. Like, there's nobody's going to say, hey, you sleep deprived, you're starting to hallucinate, you got to be self-aware. So how do you train for being self-aware? And to your question, I didn't really know. So what I do is, beginner's mind, I try everything. So I call this guy, he's a mental coach for the fireman, and say, hey, how would you train? How do you train a team? I, I train a guy, I will talk a guy, Carter, who's done long expedition classes, uh, courses. And I said, well, how would you train? How would you do it if you had to do it in my position? And I tried just about everything. Cold water soaking was Wim Hof. I did Zazen meditation. Like I told you, I did uh, uh, hypnosis. I was one week in India. We did one week of yoga with my fiancé. And then I met this guru. His name is Agyat. And Agyat says, Cyril, you should try hypnosis. Hypnosis, why? Well, hypnosis is trying to tap on your unconscious and all the core beliefs that you have. And... I think we should do it. I said, how do you do this? Well, okay. Write 20 sentences. And tomorrow we're going to do the session. It's a one hour. And those sentences, you have to really think about them. It's what you want to feel at your core once you do this trip. So I came up. I was in my bed, you know, super hot, mosquitoes everywhere. I'm trying to say, okay, how do I want to feel? I don't know. And first, I my first was, you're doing it. Because there should be no doubt in my mind that I'm able to do it and that I am doing it. Second one is you're not alone. Even though we're going to be alone on the boat, I didn't want to feel alone. Third one is you trust your instinct, right? And so on and so on. And the last one is you get to Hawaii. So he put me the next day, puts me on this bed. You know, have you ever done um, hypnosis? Not formal hypnosis like that, no. Yeah. So it's amazing. So he puts you in almost like such a deep relaxation state. Are you almost sleeping? I was always kind of there. And it, he reads you these 20 sentences over and over, very slow, hypnotic voice. And, and then he records it and says, you know, we got to listen to this every week before going to bed or every time you can. 
In the morning, you wake up, you can't sleep, you listen to this over and over. Just trying to impregnate those core beliefs into your unconscious. Things like that. The fireman, here's another thing that was crucial mentally. He's, he said, well, can you pilot your stress level? I said, what do you mean? Well, okay, as a fireman, we go to an emergency. There could be a fire. We don't know if it's going to last two hours or three days or three weeks. So you can't be as a stress level 10 out of 10 all the time. So you're fighting the fire. Yes, you have your hose in your hand. You're like, you got to cover your, your, your face with the smoke. You can't die. You have your teamwork. You got to be a 10 out of 10, right? But if you go back to the truck, you can't be a 10 out of 10. Other people are fighting the fire, right? You got to coordinate. You got to be a 7 out of 10. You got to be able to think. You're not reacting. You're thinking, right? And if you go back to the station, you need to rest. People are fighting the fire. You need to be able to do a 2 out of 10. They say, okay, what does that mean for you on the boat? That means that if you're actually, actually on the boat kayaking and there's a storm, you better be on. you got to be 10 out of 10. And it could last many hours. But then you need to have a process where if you go back to your cabin, you should be able to be a 6 out of 10. It doesn't matter if the storm's still going outside. And the day that it's calm, you should be able to go be down to a 2 out of 10 because you're your capacity to get your energy back is going to be those moments where you relax. And maybe the storm is going to last a day, maybe five days, maybe two weeks. You've got to be able to do that. So to your question, the mental is so hard. How do you train your mental? I think the first thing is self-awareness. You cannot modify anything if you're not aware of where you are. Self-awareness. Day comes to set off, and you're going out of San Francisco Bay. Mm-hmm. You're at the dock. Friends are around, presses around. You push the kayak off the dock. What were you feeling at that moment? Well, you're always a little bit scared. I mean, the pressure has been building up week after week. Did I get this? Did I do that right? I need to change this. I need to buy this. I need to add this. Do I really need this part? And then you're waiting for the right weather window. You know, you can't go if it's going to be windy because one of the things, if you, you have to get off to shore far enough so that if the wind starts to pick up, it doesn't bring you to the coast. So finally, it's happening. The tide is right. So it's right under the Golden Gate. There's this little cove called the Horseshoe Cove. Okay, so I put the boat the day before, 5 o'clock in the morning. The sun's rising. It's in June, early June. Temperature's fine. All of my friends are there, and I'm super happy. Like, this is the day. The tide is going out. Sun's rising slowly, and it's an ebb, so it's going to push me out the gate, and it's like a funnel. You know, the go- under the Golden Gate is a funnel. There's a lot of water of all the bay that's pushing me. So 5 o'clock, I go, and when I push the dock, I just feel free. I feel like, yes, I've done it. I feel so happy because, you know, in these expeditions, where the custom boat was a lot of money, making room in your, in your life to be able to go for three months at sea. And preparing everything so you can go. You know, you write your will, you put a message in all your emails, you close your account, you put everything on automatic pay, you know, your friends and family are aware. Like, there's so much going on just to be able to be at that starting point. And I felt, yes, I've done it. Yes, this is what I want. I feel alive. I love it. I love it. I love you all. <laughs> and then I go and I feel so nice and free. And there's a container sheet that goes on my side. And then, okay, 
last for two hours. And then the boats that had been following me, you know, was my brother who was here. My brother lives in California too. And my fiance and my friends. All right. One by one, they peel off and say, okay, this is Point Bonita. This last point, little point after that is the ocean for 2,500 miles. And then you turn around and they're gone. That's you. And I didn't feel afraid. I felt like, yeah, this is what I want. This is what I want. I feel, yes, it's me and the ocean now. So now you're by yourself. There's 2,500 miles of ocean in front of you. What happens next? Well, the first two weeks are the hard- hardest. And I knew. Uh, so many things change. If something breaks, let's say the, the batteries or some bad connection, solar panels, water beaker doesn't start well. Something, if something breaks electronically, it's usually the first two weeks. But then you start uh, completely alone, so you have to be a paddle lot, like I did for 15 hours, 14, 15 hours the first day to do those 35 miles off the coast. And you do that for a few days in a row. So your, your body is like still in shock because you, even though I had trained, I usually don't train more than three, four hours a day, right? So there's a physical exhaustion and then the sleep deprivation because off the coast of California, there's a lot of container ship. So my protocol for sleeping was to be in the cabin and I cannot sleep more than an hour at a time. And it's a very simple reason. My plotter can detect a boat up to 20 miles, nautical miles, right? Because my antenna is such that it doesn't go farther than that. Container ship will go 15 miles an hour, right? So that means if I have no boat within the area, then I know that for one hour I'm fine. Uh, so an hour later, put my little IKEA clock, like the cooking clock. <laughs> yeah, look. And I see no boats. Okay, I'm fine. There's a boat. Okay, I don't know what's trajectory. And then the first night, you drift. You're in the darkness. It's the first time that I actually let the boat drift. So you're looking at the plotter. Where am I going? And then, you know, you don't sleep well because the boat is rocking and rolling. So my head is moving from right to left, right to left. And then I'm a bit stressed as well, right? Because I'm starting to eat my freeze-dried meals. And then I have to make my water. I need to put electrolytes. I need to make sure that I remove all the salt from my skin. So I'm seasick for the first three days. I'm, you know, because the, the swell is such that it comes at a weird angle. And then my boat is like, whoa. And, you know, comes from the back three-quarter, right? And it's, you know, it just me, makes me nauseous. And my brain is not used to that movement. So I start to puke and, and vomit, and I need to keep water down. So self-awareness is so high, and it's so stressful. You know, start texting with your land support, and it's going well. You try to control, but yeah, the first week is, is, is really survival. And then a storm came. <sighs> Where was this coming from? My weather router. I've got a team amazing, right? I've got a medical team. I've got social media team. I've got uh, land support. The one, one guy, Dave, crucial. And then I have weather router. Michel is from France. And the weather router, what, he does, what does he do? Every day he sends me the information of the weather for the next three days. And usually you can, you can know up to a week. But he said, okay, Cyril, you can leave from under the Golden Gate. You'll be fine. Three days, perfect. No wind. You can go as far as you can. And I did 60 miles. But then the third day, he sends me a text, and he says, Cyril, okay, well, um, you're going to have to be patient because there's uh, bad weather coming, like high winds. Okay, so what? I mean, he says, first day, 25 knots, gusting 30. Second day, 30, gusting 35. Third day, 
35 gets to 40. And that should be the, the top. And then after for another three days, it'll go down and down. So it's another six days with high winds. And in general, my speed is two knots, two miles an hour, nautical miles an hour. It's very slow. So if you have winds of 25, I can't do anything. My boat is so heavy, you know, it goes sideways to the wind, to the waves. So what do I do in that case? I put what we call a sea anchor or power anchor. Um, imagine this nylon line about 50 feet long that I attach to the stern line, so the back of my boat. And at the end of that, there's a big parachute. You know, what, like those dragster uh, parachute to slow them down. That's what it does. Right. And it, it just lays there in the water. It doesn't go too deep. It just stays horizontal because my boat's pulling on it. But it's pulling faster than the, the parachute. So what it does, the wind's going one direction, creating waves on the perpendicular to the wind. But pushing my boat faster than the anchor, it positions my boat perpendicular to the waves. And that's what sailboats do, too. That sea anchor will allow me to go up and down, up and down, all day, all night, perpendicular to the waves. And that's not very comfortable, but it's safe, because you won't roll. You won't capsize. Right? And there's a retrieving line at the end of the parachute. Uh, imagine a... Uh, the parachute at the end, at the tip of the parachute, that's where the line is. If I pull on that line, it collapses the parachute and I can bring it back. Otherwise, I couldn't pull on the parachute. It's too heavy, right? So for three days, okay, well, I'll just wait it out. And it's moving a lot, increasingly, but I feel safe. I had done my training. I feel good like a cocoon. I'm, I'm fine. You know, the anchor is doing its job. I'm still eating my little candies that I see here and there. I'm watching Seinfeld because I had to be <laughs> downloaded some episode. <laughs> and I'm attached. I mean, it's still not comfortable. I don't sleep well at all. But I'm attached here on the top of the chest and on my hips. Because should I capsize, I would, in the, in, when the boat is halfway up or down, I would fall to the roof, which is at the down, right? And that could prevent the boat from capsizing. So I need to be attached so that when I capsize, my weight is still up high and then it, it, it flips better. So being attached, you know, you feel this a little bit trapped at the same time. Because you can't really escape, you know. Yeah. If you were to go and paddle faster, you can't. So after three days, everything got, went back from back to, wor to worse. Yeah. So What happened? <laughs> it's... Okay, I was doing good. Um, seven o'clock. Imagine, okay, so I'm in my cabin. I can see outside, right? And there's my cockpit where my seat is, my feet are. It's not very big, but any wave can capsize it, can uh, swamp it. And what I do from inside is press a button. There's a bilge pump, electric, that just empties it in two minutes, 30 seconds. I calculated it. Empties it, okay? I've got buoyancy. I'm fine. But that's for seven o'clock. Big waves comes and press the button, nothing happens. It makes the noise, but no water comes out. Okay, A little bit of stress. I know the boat is insubmersible. Even if it's completely swampy, it will not sink. Okay, but a little bit of stress. Okay. And then at 7.38 o'clock, I get a message from Dave, my land support on the Garmin Explorer. Uh, it's, a, it's a satellite texting system that goes through Bluetooth with my phone. And it says, Cyril, I, I don't really see your position right now. Can you check your AIS? So... Say, well, I see me and myself on the plotter. I turn it off, back on. And he doesn't see me. That's weird. And I text him back, why don't you see me? And then it takes an hour to get an answer back. So the communication is not fluid like normally it is instantaneous. I'm only 70 miles offshore, right? I'm not like in the middle of the Pacific. So it takes half an hour. I say, what? What's the problem? A little bit of stress. 
Then I say, okay, I'm going to triangulation. I look at my other. I've got another GPS. My Garmin has also latitude longitude. To look at it, and I plot it on my plotter, and I see it's about five miles away. And I have a third one. I look at the GPS and the latitude longitude. It's another point on the map. It's another five miles away. So within that triangle, I know I'm there more or less. But this is weird. Like, why are my, <laughs> my instrument not perfect? A little bit of stress, right? And finally, we say, okay, everything should be okay. And, and at 10 p.m., it was starting to get really, really dark. And the wind is blowing. Like, you have to imagine. It's a carbon boat. So any noise... It's like a, like I know what a bird feels when it's in an egg. <laughs> it would, everything reverberates like a wave. There would, there would be waves that would be consistent, like, like you imagine by the beach, but being on a vessel, right? But some were completely out of the blue, like a rogue wave. And you could hear them before they hit the boat. And we were like, boom. And that is so scary. Suddenly my boat starts to to hit, get hit and hit and hit in my boat, I could feel is not perpendicular to the waves. It's parallel to the waves. What's going on? So I text Dave, no answer back. So I decide to go and I go out the boat, out, out the cabin. And you imagine it's pitch black. Like there's clouds. You don't see anything, right? And I, I got my flashlight on the, on my, uh, on, on the forehead and I tried to look and I see my boat is per- parallel to the waves. That's not why. That must be my sea anchor. So I start to look back. And I can see that my retrieving line that allows me to pull back and retrieve the capsule is or stuck on my rudder. Somehow the waves, you know, moving up and down, got that line stuck in the rudder, shortened that line, collapsed the parachute. The parachute was not doing its, its job anymore. That means my boat is sideways. I go back in the cabin and I'm wet completely because the waves are coming, swamping the boat. And I didn't like that because my, I bring water into what is safe and dry. Stress goes up. Okay, I close the hatch. What do I do? I'm starting to end. Bang! And everything in my cabin is upside down. Like everything. And then I attach myself. I'm wet. And also there's a bit of water that came in because I opened the hatch when I was coming back in. And I started to text, Dave, Dave, what's going on? I, I don't know. My, my sinker is that. He said, okay, well, how do you feel? I said, I don't know. There's three solutions. And we try to assess, right? With no emotions. Fact based. One, I get attached to a tether and I go swim at the back and I disentangle that rudder. I don't want to do that because it was jerking like, like bronco. If I get hit on the, on the head, I pass out, I'm dead. I'm attached to the boat. I'm not lost, but I'm dead. And it's as real as it is. You feel your, how strong the ocean is. Option number two, I just wait it out. I can wait for three days. Yeah. Okay. But then, Everything's upside down. I can't sleep. My stress level is so high. But actually, I feel, I feel in control. But my body is in stress. I start to vomit. I start to even have to poop. I say, what am I doing? My body's trying to evacuate all this. So, wait it out another three days like this. There's no way. I can't eat. I can't pee. I can't poop. I can't make water. I can't sleep. I'm exhausted. Like, I'm drifting. What? And I'm stressed. Oh, no, I can't do this. Option three is call the Coast Guards and say, look, it's not doing good. My boat's not responding. I'm, I'm not feeling safe here. It's really not safe. I'm, I'm fearing for my life. And then Dave says, Cyril, I gave him the right to call it off. 
if he felt like I was not in control. He could call up the Coast Guard and come pick me up. And I'm not very far. I'm 70 miles offshore. And then it takes me an hour to decide, okay, I always say safety first. And it's not the best way to start, you know, a 70-day crossing. So I decide safety first. I'm going to call the Coast Guards. And I call them. I had the protocol nailed. They say, okay, we're going to come and get you. They send the chopper. An hour later, it was here. I was out. I did everything like per the book because I had done the survival at sea. I had done the first aid. I had everything. So I communicate with them on the VHF. And they come closer. They say, okay, send a flare. I had a parachute flare to show where I was. And I had a handheld flare so they see where I am. And they hove over my boat for maybe 15 minutes. Seems super long. I'm out. But I got all of my survival gear, survival suit, my PFD that inflated with a strobe light. So they see me if I do fall in the water. Um, I've got the VHF so I can talk to them. And then the guy jumps, uh, the diver jumps from the helicopter. Well, I think he, I couldn't really see. It was so dark. Comes down on the wire and then he lets the wire go and comes and comes see me and says, you're okay. Uh, let me bring you back. You know, you gotta let go of the boat and come with me. And, and then he attached me to the wire. <laughs> like freaking. James Bond. And then, but the sad James Bond. I wish I could have done that. But then that meant my adventure was done. An hour later, I'm in SFO, San Francisco airport. And my boat is drifting on the water. The Coast Guard save you. They don't care about the boat. They save you. They save lives. And there I am, two o'clock in the morning, calling my friend to come pick me up. Like, what did I do? Ay, ay, ay. Very tough. And then... Short time later, you went out to get your boat. Hmm. And what did you find when you when you went out to sea to, to retrieve it? Well, it was actually not that far. It's far, but it's not far. It's far for a boat to go get it, 70 miles, you know. If you go at 15 miles an hour on a motorboat, it's going to take you five or six hours to go get it and bring it back. If you bring it back at five miles an hour, it's another 10, 15 hours to bring it back. So I had to find somebody who was about the height of Santa Cruz. Finally, I find a towboat who allows me, agrees to come and go get it. There was no way I was going to leave it there. And when I arrive, Valentin is there, like bubbling around, happy, <laughs> fine. She was fine. All intact. All intact. She wasn't tangled with the rudder, but all right, I, I dive and I take it off in 10 minutes. And then first he's like, wow, I wasn't trained. I, I could have done that, not in that rough water, but hey, if I had passed out, for three days, like literally passed out, slept. If I had my Zazen meditation good enough that I could calm myself down for three days and then say, okay, whatever happens, happen, I'm fine, I'm going to be fine, my boat, you know, trust me, I would have been fine. I would not have died. So then the first realization is like, maybe, you know, I could have trained more. Like, I wasn't really, but still, I thought I had done the right thing. Scott Donaldson calls you up and you have a conversation. Tell us about that. So Scott uh, crossed the Tasman Sea from Australia to New Zealand on this small kayak in a cabin in, in the front. Amazing man. Amazing man. It took him three attempts. First attempt, he was rescued after a week. Second attempt, he was res rescued about a week from getting to New Zealand. And third attempt, he made it. And very early before, he was always there we did a lot of, you know, Zoom calls and say, how's your training doing? Did you do this? Did you do that? How about that? Did you think of that? Have you tried this? Have you tried that? 
amazing. And then that's the great thing is like these amazing athletes give us all their information, you know, selfless, selfless listening, whatever. <laughs> and then first thing I do is we organize a call with Dave, my land support and Scott. Scott, here's what happened. I don't know what to do. I mean, should I go in two weeks? My boat's fine. It's got swamped, but if I empty the water, you know, I can go. So uh, before we do we talk about all this, where are you prepared? So yeah, I was prepared. My boat, you know, first three days, perfect. I managed to sleep deprivation, my seasickness, uh, you know, did 30 miles a day. I felt strong. And, yeah, but surely you were rescued. So where are you prepared? And yeah, I was prepared for, you know, I slept for three days. I was stuck in the cabin, but I didn't feel too much fear. I felt safe. And yeah, but you got rescued. Yeah, I got rescued when I was rescued. I did perfect. Like it was a piece of cake, not a piece of cake for the Coast Guard. Bless them. You know, so good. They, they were so good. But, you know, I had all the protocol, the probe, the VHF, the flares, you know, survival seat. Yeah, but Cyril, you were prepared. You were rescued. So were you prepared? <laughs> Say, okay. Fuck. Excuse my French. Yeah, I wasn't prepared. What What do you mean I wasn't prepared? I was prepared. No, obviously I wasn't prepared because I was rescued. And then he said, okay, okay. Now we can start talking about how you prepare better. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you down the road when we get together again, share a glass of whiskey, and hear more stories of adventure as told by those who live them. Until then, check us out at michaeljreinhardt.com where you'll find more of my work as an adventure photojournalist. Photos, videos, and articles of interesting people, mysterious places, and exotic cultures from the wild places of the world. <laughs>